0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, The Search for Fort Shackelford, built in 1855.
1: They feel like the only solution is to have the Native Americans, the Seminoles, agree to move out west or incite violence from the, the Seminoles so that they can have a reason to exterminate them.
0: Memories of Jupiter and West Palm Beach in the 1930s and 40s.
2: We would walk through J.C. Penney's because it was one of the few buildings in West Palm Beach that was air conditioned.
0: The Cuban Missile Crisis in Florida, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Archaeologists are searching for Fort Shackelford, which was constructed in 1855 during the Seminole Wars of the 1800s. Many Florida towns were built around Seminole War forts, and some, such as Fort Pierce, Fort Lauderdale, and Fort Myers, still retain their fort names. The U.S. Army constructed forts about a day's walk apart so the soldiers could travel from one fort to another during the day and have protection at night. Doctor Annette Snap is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network Southwest Region and is leading the effort to locate Fort Shackelford. As Dr. Snapp explains, the Seminole Wars were a series of three conflicts. The first began with Andrew Jackson's invasion of Florida in eighteen sixteen.
1: At that time, you know, he is very interested in Florida and in wresting that from Spain and also in the movement of the Indians away from the white settlers. The prevailing thought at the time was that the white people and the indigenous people could not live together peacefully and in his mind the way to do that was to have the Indians agree to move elsewhere and that was kind of the idea behind the 1830 Indian Removal Act. Uh, And so at that time Uh, There is this sense that everybody will agree to do this, but of course it leads to the Trail of of Tears. Uh, The the Cherokees and other Indians are forced to walk um, out west to Oklahoma and other areas out west. With Andrew Jackson uh, turning his eyes on Florida and the federal government turning their eyes on Florida, uh, it leads to... The Second Seminole War, they've been pushed sort of into the center of the state. There's a reservation there. But tensions rise uh, between the Seminoles and the white settlers. The Seminoles are engaging in guerrilla warfare, and they're attacking and ambushing uh, the white settlers, which, of course, is something which is very unnerving. It might only happen uh, once a year, but it's enough to be very, very scary uh, for those uh, early pioneers. Um, and uh, following that, following the Second Seminole War, they're pushed even farther south, so they're in the Southwest Florida reservation uh, and by 1850 you have the um, Swamp Act, which allows the federal government to give lands, swamp lands, uh, to the states, which they can turn around and sell and raise funds by selling it to settlers who agree to drain the land. And settle them. You know, the idea is to bring more and more people into uh, Florida, but now they've created a a huge conflict. They're asking people to go into this area where the Seminole are living, um, and of course more and more settlers are moving in, and it's, you know, again, tensions are rising, and the Seminoles are, of course, unhappy about it. Not only are they retaliating locally, but they're also going throughout the state. So no part of the state, even though uh, South Florida maybe where it's playing out on the reservation. They are taking their guerrilla warfare everywhere throughout the state. Uh, and again, it might only happen once a year, twice a year, three times a year, uh, but it's un- unnerving. They're killing people. Uh, it's frightening. It's scary. And the federal government sees that they feel like the only solution is to have the Native Americans, the Seminoles, agree to move out west or incite violence from the the Seminoles so that they can have a reason to exterminate them.
0: Fort Shackelford was built on Seminole reservation land in 1855 so the U.S. government could monitor Seminole activities more closely. Fort Shackelford was destroyed, so Dr. Snap's search for its exact location begins with written records.
1: There are military records that say that Fort Shackelford was built and when it was built and, and who built it. So we have a really good idea of the time period, of when they're there. Um, we've got at least a general idea of where they're located, and it's this later marker that's put on the landscape in 1943 that is uh, that gives us more of a target, as an archaeologist or a group of archaeologists to investigate you know, where we think Fort Shackelford was located.
0: The four historic markers identifying the corners of Fort Shackelford were placed almost a century later so their accuracy is not assured. Further, only one of the markers remains today and it does not specify which corner it represents. Still, the marker provided Dr. Snap with a starting place.
1: Today there's only one, and we don't know which one is left. And we think that probably the others were removed during, uh, you know, a lot of that area was used for agriculture. And so, in order to prepare the land, that they were probably just removed. Again, the question is which, which one is left there? But it still gives us a pretty good target.
0: Although Fort Shackelford was burned to the ground not long after it was built, it continued to show up on maps for many years.
1: It does. It's a really unusual sort of memory marker that uh, the the map makers just keep including Fort Shackelford forty years after it's gone.
0: In two thousand nine, Dr. Snap brought a group of archaeology students onto the Seminole Reservation at Big Cypress. Starting with the one remaining marker, they tried to find evidence of Fort Shackelford on the site.
1: Well, this was really um, a a joint venture between the tribal historic preservation office, which has a lot of archaeologists on it, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Um, so we collaborated on that, and that's how we uh, determined that there would be a location um, acceptable to the Seminoles and the Tribal Historic Preservation Office on reservation lands to investigate. Uh, and as a day-to-day experience, it was really unusual in that it afforded the students an opportunity to be immersed uh, for two 10-day sessions where they were literally out there all day and spending the evenings there on the reservation. It is, if you haven't been out there, it is at the edge of the Everglades and at the edge of Big Cypress Swamp and it is a very swampy environment and it's uh, kind of like entering um, a completely different domain if you're not familiar with it. uh, One that includes alligators um, and snakes and tall grasses and marshy areas And the the students had, um, for some of them, uh, I think it was the first opportunity to also see the reservation and become familiar with a living indigenous group that is in their backyard and to know that we share this area together.
0: After completing her historical research, finding the lone historic marker claiming to be on the site of Fort Shackelford, and bringing a team of students to the location for an archaeology field school, Dr. Snap employed a variety of techniques to establish the exact location of the fort.
1: Prior to starting the actual field school, some remote sensing was undertaken. So the Tribal Historic Preservation Office actually uh, conducted ground penetrating radar, and that is using radar that is um, sent down into the ground and it bounces back up and you record that information and what you hope to gain from that data is potential features that you can go back and investigate later. So if there is an object um, below the surface that you can't see, it's going to bounce off, that radar will bounce off of it and you'll be able to get some kind of signature with the ground penetrating radar. Um, secondarily, metal detecting was undertaken also, and that um, helped, um, we believed, uh, give us a target for where the, the site, the, the fort might be located.
0: During their field school, Dr. Snap's students made some tantalizing discoveries on the likely site of Fort Shackelford.
1: A lot of what we found were metal fragments. Um, We did find some lead shot. Um, I think we found four lead shot, and that's in total, including our metal detecting survey. We found some pieces of ceramics, uh, and we found those in sort of disturbed areas that we think might date to Seminole uh, camps because we know the area was used by the Seminoles as hunting camps uh, after the Third Seminole War. Um, We found cut nails. Um, so, though we found two cut nails, and those were probably the two most distinctive things. They date to the right time period, 1835 to 1850s. Um, so, we felt confident about that. But one unusual item that we found uh, was this um, it looks like a Navy button, it looks like off of a military jacket. But the more I investigated that, and I was given that task, I, I looked through books that just had pages of pictures of military buttons, because someone has done this research, and I couldn't find a match. I was totally confounded. So I contacted a friend of mine, an archaeologist, who's very well versed in this era, on this kind of material, and I told him this is made of lead. I told him what percentage of lead it was. He said, you know, this looks like a replica to me. And so that that gave us at least some idea of what we were looking at, of this confusing artifact. Uh, it seemed to date to more modern period, uh, a time period during the, the 50s and 60s when military, replica military jackets were popular. And we also had an oral history that one of the uh, managers of the property liked to wear, just that type of, of jacket. So um, something that we thought might support Uh, the military actions there turned out not to be um, and other things were more modern and we just had a couple of items we had a we also had a mystery container that looked maybe like it was it looked about the size of a sardine can but of course it was terribly rusted and we we really couldn't pin it down beyond that
0: Dr. Snap and her team collected 260 artifacts on site some of which seemed to support the idea that this was the location of Fort Shackelford Dr. Snap was just about to publish her findings. Then there was a twist in the story.
1: There is a twist. Um, one of the tribal historic preservation office um, staffers was um, having lunch at a local restaurant, and he started talking to one of the tribal Seminole tribal elders uh, about this project and about this property. And at the time, we did know that metal detecting had taken place on on the property in around the 70s and so we were aware of that but what we weren't aware of that the elders shared was that the site was actually salted or uh, pieces of metal were put out um, for those people to find um, generally so that they would have a good time and they would enjoy their time out on the reservation Uh, they would spend a little money to have the opportunity to do this they would find some things and and have a good time so that gave us a completely different perspective on what we were finding. And it might explain some of the confusing items that we we have found. So there could still well in our data um, be artifacts that are genuine to the fort. And then we might have a mixture of things that are are not genuinely related to that, but actually related to this much later activity of um, entertaining a local metal detecting club.
0: Dr. Snapp says there is still hope of definitively finding Fort Shackelford. Explorations might begin on opposite sides of the one remaining 1943 marker. Despite the lack of a firm conclusion to the search for Fort Shackelford, Dr. Snapp says that this work led to exciting collaborations between outside archeologists and the Seminole Tribe.
1: It really brought home to me this idea of indigenous archeology span that the groups, these living cultures, have a lot to share about their own heritage of course the story is about them and about their heritage and that the collaborating on it is how you come to the full story and having only half of the story is very confusing and you can come to the wrong conclusion very easily and having more of it of course can give you a fuller picture maybe a more accurate picture
0: dr annette snapp is director of the florida public archaeology network southwest region
3: (laughs) Hey ya! Yo ho! Hey Yo Hey ya! Hey ya! Hey Hey ya! Hey ya! Hey ya! Hey ya! Hey ya! Hey Hey ya!
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. If you're looking for great gifts this holiday season, be sure to visit myfloridahistory.org. You can order fantastic books about Florida history and culture. You can give someone a gift membership in the Florida Historical Society, which will provide them with a subscription to the Florida Historical Quarterly that lasts all year. For a very special gift, you can register for our cruise to the Bahamas in May as we hold our 2013 annual meeting and symposium on board the Carnival Sensation. That's MyFloridaHistory.org for great gifts for others or yourself. This is Florida Frontiers.
4: In 2013, Florida commemorates its 500th anniversary, dating from the arrival of Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon on our Atlantic coast. Now, a moment in history with Florida's Secretary of State, Ken
5: Detzner. Among Florida's many remarkable pioneers, David Levy Uly, entrepreneur and legislator, is one of the most intriguing. Born on a Caribbean island before Florida was part of the U.S., David Levy was a Sephardic Jew whose ancestors had moved over the centuries from North Africa to Spain, England, and Holland, and who later adopted his father's historic surname, Uly. Young David practiced law in St. Augustine and Fernandina and built a sugarcane plantation along the Homosassa River, which today is a state historic site in Citrus County. He was Florida's first delegate to Congress, a proponent of the expansion of slavery, the first Jewish man to serve in the United States Senate, and after his succession, a member of the Confederate Congress. Long a promoter of railroads in Florida, Uly undertook to build a rail line in the 1850s to connect Florida's Atlantic coast and the Gulf of Mexico, but it was interrupted by the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861. Imprisoned after the war for his allegiance to the Confederacy, Uly returned to Florida to reconstruct his railroads, but never lived to realize his dreams for railroad transportation in Florida. Today, a town and county bear the name of David Levy Yulee, and in 2000, he was declared a Great Floridian by the Florida Department of State. This Moment in History was produced by the
4: Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs. This is
0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Janie Gould of WQCS talks with a man who remembers growing up in Jupiter and West Palm Beach in the 1930s and 40s.
3: Jupiter had a population of 200 or so when Wilson Horn was growing up in the 1930s and 40s. He recalls only three buildings of any consequence in the town.
2: The Jupiter Lighthouse, the McKay Radio Station with its two 300-foot towers, and the Jupiter High School.
3: And that was about it. Now, there was an attraction you were telling me about known as the Garden of the Gods. It was really the work of one man.
2: The man was a member of the old Hissed family. He had built a jungle area which was bordered by Old Dixie Highway, US 1, and the locks the Hatchie River. He had gone in there and made paths and fountains and planted all kinds of flowering trees and shrubs.
3: Did he have a big sign out front?
2: No, he was a very private person, and he did this for his own reasons. But if you approached him in the right manner, he would be happy to give you a personal tour if you could stand the mosquitoes.
3: You went in there one time with your mother. Well, we walked around, and uh, he showed
2: us all that he had done. He was prepared for the mosquitoes. He had wrapped newspapers underneath his pant legs. He had a cloth hanging down the back of his hat, and he carried a swish made out of uh, slitted palmetto frond, which he would continue to slap himself around the face and the hands to get the mosquitoes away. It was muggy and hot, and if you could stand that, the garden was really worth seeing. Half the people in Jupiter didn't know it was there.
3: You went into the Garden of the Gods one time. That was enough? That was enough for the tour. However,
2: he had a shell road going through the gardens up to his house, and he would allow the boys on our bicycles to take shortcuts to his property and park our bikes there and catch the Florida Motor Line bus to West Palm Beach so we could go to the movie. The first time I experienced air conditioning was when we would go to the movies in West Palm Beach. We would walk through J.C. Penney's because it was one of the few buildings in West Palm Beach that was air conditioned.
3: How much did the bus ticket cost? Fifty-five cents. So that was your entertainment when you were able to have the 55 cents for the trip and the 55 cents for the return trip, and the money for the movie.
2: Yeah, if we could earn enough money, some jobs were 10 cents an hour. As I got a little older, I went all the way up to 25 cents an hour. I worked at the pinup Plantation. I worked at the uh, pinup Dairy, running the bottle washing machine. I worked for uh, Arthur DuBois, uh, weeding ferns.
3: Horn's family had a hard scrabble existence in Jupiter during the Depression. Some of their farming ventures failed.
2: Horse and deer ate the uh, crops that were planted. The mosquitoes sucked so much blood out of the cow that she quit giving milk. We ate rabbits, swamp cabbage, poke weeds, and wild grapes. Poke weeds are a, a weed that comes up where you disturb the earth. Some people call them poke berries.
3: Horn's father got a job with the Civilian Conservation Corps, a New Deal program. He helped build roads and trails in the Ocala National Forest. During World War II, a job opportunity beckoned closer to home for Wilson Horn. While still in school, he got a job at Camp Murphy, a military installation at what is now Jonathan Dickinson State Park. Men were being trained there in the new technology known as radar, but that was top secret.
2: They had put about 25 telephone poles where everybody could see, and they'd keep about 25 men climbing on top of those poles with telephones. They wanted everybody to know that this was a Signal Corps training center, and they were teaching these men how to climb telephone poles and use the telephone. They had the radar hidden back in the
3: woods. Wilson Horn, 83, still lives in Jupiter.
0: Janie Gould prepared that report. In October 1962, the United States and the Soviet Union faced off over the presence of guided missiles on the island of Cuba. Bill
6: Dudley has more. It is an incredibly dramatic story, but contained in just
4: a fortnight, 13 days of high international tension. Speaking at the Sarasota Reading Festival, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Max Frankel, author of High Noon in the Cold War, Kennedy Khrushchev and the Cuban Missile Crisis. As a young reporter for the New York Times, Frankel covered the events of 1962, but he also draws on more modern sources, including documents made public on the 40th anniversary of the crisis. It began at a time when Americans were winning the global missile race, outnumbering the Soviets 17 to one in available nuclear warheads. Premier Nikita Khrushchev, facing an angry military, hit on a desperate solution. One day he got this
6: notion, I'm gonna throw a Hail Mary pass. I've got these short-range missiles that I've aimed all over Europe. If I put them in Cuba, they will have the function of long-range missiles, and maybe I'll get my generals off my back, and maybe I don't have to go into a new expensive arms program. And then I
4: will be able to negotiate with Kennedy as more of an equal. But when the unfinished missile sites were discovered by u 2 surveillance photos in October 1962, Kennedy knew he must confront the Soviet leader.
6: In terms of what Khrushchev had done to deceive us, in terms of how the world would see Kennedy who had already failed with an invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs, he had already tolerated the Berlin Wall going up in the middle of Europe, he was weak diplomatically, he was weak politically. This had to be resisted, and so Kennedy decided he had to get those missiles
4: out. Late in the evening of October 18, 1962, President John Kennedy records his own summary of the day's events in the Oval Office, one of a group of tapes released in 1996 by the Kennedy Library. We
6: felt that the first strike, would be very destructive to our alliance, and the Soviets would inevitably
4: Uh, bring about a Kennedy had known of the missiles for two days, but he would not reveal them to the American public until October 22nd. He went on the air and he threw the gauntlet and he said, we stand at the abyss
6: of thermonuclear war and any attack from Cuba, I'm going to regard as attack from the Soviet Union and I'm going to retaliate. I mean, you could not pose a threat in more extreme terms. We sent 66 nuclear bombers flying in the air, Dr. Strangelove style, around the Soviet Union. We moved divisions into Florida. We requisitioned trains and buses. We sent the entire American Navy and seven aircraft carriers into the Caribbean. And then quietly and in various
4: ways, we said to Khrushchev, Now let's talk. These were tense times for the country, and Florida in particular, according to historian Ray Arsenault. The fear was, of course, palpable in October of 62. I mean, I can remember personally the shock of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the sense
0: that the nuclear holocaust was imminent, that we might die that weekend. There was an immediacy in Florida that perhaps there wasn't in many other parts of the country, with Cuba being only 90 miles away from the Keys, and with the Cuban population rising, and all the bad feeling following the the Bay of Pigs, the tensions were perhaps at their height. Of course, Florida was still, at that point, the center of the space program. I think Floridians did see themselves as more of a target People were still constructing uh, bomb shelters, and people really had a sense that the nuclear clock was ticking, and Florida would be the first place to be attacked.
4: Author Frankel suggests that aside from any one political system, the events of 1962 offer lessons about the nature of leadership in any society the brash and powerful Khrushchev versus the elegant young Kennedy, and how both men stumbled into the crisis.
6: I don't believe that history repeats itself or that analogies from one era to another have any real significance. But we were talking about a situation where for the first time in our history, at least since the British invaded, burned the White House in 1812, we felt ourselves vulnerable. It resonates because the crisis occurred because of catastrophic intelligence failures by the great KGB of the Soviet Union and by the great CIA of the United States. Khrushchev was absolutely sure that if he could sneak these missiles into Cuba, then after the congressional election of 1962, Kennedy would protest, but he would say, "Okay, we'll live with them. And boy, was he wrong. And Kennedy was absolutely sure throughout the summer of 1962 when he saw all these Soviet ships that they would never include nuclear weapons. The CIA assured him that it wouldn't happen. And that through these miscalculations, these two fellows stumbled into this awesome crisis where suddenly in the image that I put on the title of my book, they were stalking at each other with nukes drawn high noon in the Cold War. Journalist
4: Max Frankel. High Noon in the Cold War is published by Ballantine Books. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We'll be right here again next week. Don't forget to do your holiday shopping at myfloridahistory.org where there's everything from great books to a very special cruise. That's myfloridahistory.org. Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.